If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking, your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds, and while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The glass noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. Hi, everybody. I'm super excited to be joined by Katie Martell today. Hi, Katie. Hello. And let's talk about how I know Katie. I was trying to do the math on this. I think we probably met around 2010. Does that sound right? It does. You? And I think I was at Eloqua back then, and you were at Net Prospects, mm-hmm. which got acquired by Don and Bradstreet. And I think you like coordinated getting me in to speak at like a sales kickoff or something like I'm that. Sure, I did something like that. Yeah, it was all the L show, and we just wanted you everywhere. Oh, please! So we've known each other for a long time, and we also are both located in the Metro Boston area. Although I do live about forty miles north, and as I said today, I might as well be Vermont. I live in Canada. I live in to clarify. <laughs> I live on the North Shore. But anyway, we thought that it would be fun to sit down and actually do this together. I always like to start with the origin story, where people came from. You started your career in comms roles, right? And you went to school for marketing. So I assume that deep down, you always knew you wanted to be involved in marketing. But you you were really involved in sort of like the comms side, media, PR. And you worked at brands, you worked at some agencies, and now you're kind of doing your own thing. And I just want to talk about like your path. Like, how did you find your way here? Do you know that I was a music major before I went into marketing? Of course not. I did not know that. If you had to guess the instrument, what would you guess? Oboe. Oh, come on. I don't know. I don't even know what an oboe looks like. At least give me the credit of a brass instrument. Oh, okay. A saxophone. That's still not brass. (laughs) They have a reed, like an oboe. I'm meeting a reed player. Go more big Uh brass. Trombone. You got it. Oh my God. I was a trombone and a music ed and a jazz trombone performance major before I realized you'd make no money doing that. And then I had a summer job at my dad's company. They made video production switchers, mm-hmm. camera A, camera mm-hmm. B. Whoop. It was this like crazy introduction to what marketing really was. In yeah. this case, it was B2B marketing with one marketer. Yep. And I realized, oh, I can still make money, get a job in business, but have a lot of fun. We were doing everything from trade shows to creative. I was exposed to kind of all the fun part of marketing. And I was getting 15 bucks an hour when I was like 19. Oof. And I figured, okay, this marketing Crushing thing it. looks legit. Let's try it. Transferred to Emerson College in Boston, studied marketing, uh, graduated at the height of the recession, and nobody was hiring. No. Not one agency. Yeah. Not one company. I was about to give up and keep my job at at a hotel, just doing a front desk gig for a bit. And then I got approached by a company on Twitter. This was 2008, and basically nobody was on Twitter, right? Except people that knew how to use Twitter, right? And which so was like not, five people. It was me and four people. Actually, funny fun fact: I like when I was an out of work marketer. I want to say in 2008, 2009, which is like the worst time to be an out of work marketer. Awful. I got really nervous, and mutual friends of ours, the folks at Version Two Communications, mm-hmm. were doing like a 
social media workshop. Like, how does, how do you work this crap? And I like went because I was like, oh my God, I have to learn how to use Twitter. I'm not going to get a job. That's how I learned how to use Twitter. Honestly, though, everyone felt this rush of we need to be on this platform and figure it out, including the company, Net Prospects, that was looking to hire uh, somebody who knew Twitter, but also someone who was cheap. So like a recent graduate. And I honestly got a a LinkedIn message from, at that time, the COO, Mark Feldman. Yep. Shout out to Mark. And he said, do you want to, do you want to come in for an interview? And I was like, absolutely not. What B2B crowdsourced data? I had no idea what it meant. Right, right, right. But I met the team and I met... And you knew how to use Twitter. I knew how to use Twitter, but that's pretty much all I knew about marketing. And I was so inspired by this crazy founder, Gary Hallowell, Mm -hmm. his passion for what seemed to be the most ridiculous business idea of cleaning email addresses and verifying phone numbers. Things that people get excited about and being all B2B. Right? But Mm -hmm. I was so grateful for it. It really, A, got me a job. Thank you. But it got me introduced to yeah. the burgeoning world of MarTech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were kind of, we were selling lists. We were cleaning data for people. We were appending data. Yeah, yeah. It taught me what... That turned into a huge thing. It it's a huge, a huge thing. thing. Yeah, it's huge. still made yeah. 10, 11 years later. It's still yeah. a huge problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a complete jump in the deep end of marketing. Yep. At a startup, employee number 12. Company got now got acquired. Yep. We doubled in size cool. every year. My title was marketing manager when I started, but people weren't taking me seriously. I was the only marketer. So I got a director title in about six months. And so I was the director of Buzz. Yeah, I remember that. I was doing events. I was doing content, social, PR, and partnerships with companies like Eloqua. And that's how we ended up meeting. So thank God for Twitter. Yeah. Well, blazing the trail. (laughs) Can I I make a confession? I've been, this this has actually been weighing on me a lot lately. I'm ready. I like can't bring myself to use Twitter anymore. (laughs) And it's really because it's just like one more thing. I think so much of our like, like I feel like LinkedIn has become the Facebook for professionals. And so like, I don't know, I get my news there, my business related news. I kind of see what's going on. Like I just Twitter, I'm just like, I can't. And my husband loves it. Like he can see all his news. Well, he's an artist and he also is a news junkie and he actually finds that's the best feed for news related stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, the Russians are really, just someone tell me the one thing I need to know. That's it. I'm good. (laughs) I just can't. I'm like, I can't, I can't do Twitter anymore. I think as a marketer. Does that make me a bad marketer? I think, no, I think as a marketer, you look at the world through the lens of marketing and you look at things more skeptically. So you see Twitter and you think, ah, it's marketing. Everything is marketing. I think my favorite yeah. marketers are inherently very, very skeptical because of this. So yeah, you're not alone. I'm, I'm so skeptical. Everyone follow Ellen on Twitter now. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it'd be, I hate Twitter. Be, <laughs> you will be so <laughs> underwhelmed. No, she tweets like every six months. Okay, so so cool. So fast forward to now. Yes. So what are you what are you doing now? I have to say, my career from then to now took a few different zigzags. It was in house at a PR firm, in house at an analyst firm. Started my own MarTech company, which was great. That was actually fun. Entrepreneurship and me are good friends. Raising money, building something out of nothing. I really loved it. While I was there, I started speaking a little more to promote the business. I remember that. And then when, you know, the business ran out of money and it wasn't a fit anymore, I started freelancing. And that was 2016. I was getting married that fall. I thought, let me just take a few months. I'll do some freelance gigs. I'll do some speaking. Famous last okay. words. <laughs> Just a couple months. I'll Three do this. Three years later. Yeah. And, I mean, um, I've been doing it for like five or six months yes. and it feels like an eternity. So Consulting is not for everyone. Not yeah. to say it's not for you. No. But it's, it's an adventure. And you and I were talking a little earlier about yeah. this, but you really do have to value certain things to be a yep. good consultant. One of those things is freedom independence. And that comes with ambiguity. That comes with you need to discipline. Uh, So it's really not for people that need structure or certainty. Luckily, I got married and it gave me a little bit of of You got that someplace else. Well, you know what I mean? I got that security at home. And uh, my wife has always been super supportive. I started dating her when I started the company, the tech company, the SaaS company. And she said, go for it. We'll make it work. 
you can move in with me. It was like an excuse to move in together, yep. which I was much better about. She's always just been like, go for it. Yeah. And having that means that you can do the uncertainty, the risky, mm-hmm. everything else in your mm-hmm. day job. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, I wouldn't recommend adding the stress of consulting. Yeah. No, I mean, I've been doing it for a little bit now. I'm not going to be doing it forever. It's been sort of a stopgap thing. And I like, I kind of like the uncertainty of it. I kind of like no two days are the same. I sort of like having 12 balls up in the air. Mm-hmm. So I totally get that. I think I personally have found like I don't have enough of the like self-discipline that it requires. I'm like, oh, I, I just need to work for someone. And it's like balancing the like actual work you need to do on the client side with like keeping your business running is actually yeah. a lot. Yeah. So talk to me about like what kind of projects do you work on? Like what kind of things do you love to do? What kind of problems when someone brings you on, you're like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to solve this problem. Because I'm independent, I get to choose. And that really is the best part of it. It's very liberating to choose who you want to work with. For me... Because I have a background in B2B, it's generally B2B companies that I'm working with. Yep. Because I focus so heavily on anything that's marketing to marketers, whether services or tech, MarTech primarily, yep. I work with a lot of those brands. I've, I've gotten a lot in this client roster by over the last few years. And because I've had a background in communications and content marketing, that's kind of where yeah. projects tend to, to gravitate. Yep. But they're all very, very different. So some might be wildly executional. Hey, Katie, we need some great pieces. We need you to ghostwrite for the CEO. Yep. Just do it. Fine. Great. Love it. Some are very, on the flip end of that, really strategic. Yep. Hey, we're a big, big company. Our content marketing department is brand new. We need to kind of fix a process, fix a workflow, yep. figure out the strategy. We don't really know... So there's things like workshops and strategy sessions. And then there's everything in between. That's like a combination of coaching individuals and companies, yep. coaching executives. What I love about being Teaching people to use Twitter, maybe. I mean, you never, honestly, somebody called me a coach recently and I thought, oh, that's a stupid word. And then I realized, oh, that's a great word for what I do. Yeah. Because you get paid for your opinion. And because I've now seen so many problems, either live them or see them with my clients, I can recognize a lot more. Yeah. I think, actually, that's, I think that's spot on. I think, I think... You hire a consultant because you need a coach because yeah. you need somebody to like advise you and show you the path mm-hmm. or help you navigate something you've not done before. I think that's I think that's absolutely and accurate. Be a cheerleader, yeah. too, in a sense. Yeah, of like yeah. this is really hairy and this is really difficult, but you got this. Yep. I think that's underrated for a lot of consultants. You actually get hired to tell people how and what the path forward yep. should look like. But there's this level of you need to tell them you can do this too. Yeah. There's a level of like confidence. confidence and, yeah. Confidence yeah. 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 Now I'm going to ask you another trivia question about Please. me. What sport was I an actual coach for? 16 year old girls. Softball. You got it. I mean, like, <laughs> you sort of like, it was going to be, cliche, it yes, was going to be soft. <laughs> That's funny. You're funny. It's true though. So I have a coaching background and I really love the process. So now yeah. I have clients that are just individuals. Some yep. entrepreneurs, some are marketers in house, and they'll come. It's like a it's like a standing weekly call. That's interesting. Like I think you are wired for that, or you're not. Yeah. Like I think the best the best you know whether it's consultants or coaches or like there's something from a DNA perspective that is ingrained in how they approach teaching and guiding and all of that yeah. stuff. Blind optimism, yeah, naive confidence. Well, <laughs> it's all there. I'm telling you. So, so I was going to ask you this question, and then I noticed this right here. It says Katie Martell, rabble rouser. It does. And you have often talked about yourself as being this unapologetic marketing truth teller. Yes. And I'm like, what does that mean? What do you think you're out there saying that other people aren't saying? And that's exactly what the definition is. I think that we as marketers need to tell exceptional truths, not only about our own industries, but about and for the companies that we work for. Okay. Because telling the truth today, unfortunately is a radical act. Yeah. But truth 
breaks through the noise. When you've told an exceptional truth, the people listening could be your buyers, it could be your colleagues. They sit there and think, oh, thank God someone else said it. Right. I have been thinking this and waiting for someone to say it. Oh, this is my, like, probably my best trade and my biggest fault. <laughs> but it's why people gravitate towards you. Maybe. And it's why you're able to get shit done at work. Can yeah. you swear on this podcast? Sure, why not? Sorry. Sorry for We're not on NPR or anything. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, think big. Uh-huh. No, but it's true. If you can tell the truth about anything, your yeah. own life in general, yeah, totally. you will progress and you yeah. will move forward. So the nickname was given to me by a colleague who was reading the post that I had written about faux feminism in marketing. Yes, we're going to talk about that. It's a huge issue. It's a huge topic. But it, it now I've adopted it. And, and because I've adopted it as a personal mantra, unapologetically telling the truth, yeah. I think my clients as a consultant, my audience when I'm a speaker look for that as well. At least mm-hmm. I think that they do. And so I try to deliver it. I will tell the truth about your situation, even if it sucks. Yeah. And I will tell the truth about how hard a problem is going to be to solve. Mm-hmm. If I'm on stage helping you solve it, mm-hmm. even if it's hard. Yeah. That's a great MO to live yeah, by. Yeah. I agree. I agree with that. And I think you're right. I mean, I have always kind of like, I joke about it, but like, you know, I, I grew up in Southern Rhode Island, but I lived in Boston, the Boston area for over 20 years. And there's like a Bostonian in me that's just ultra direct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like not, like I'm not, Joe Chernoff once said that I was prickly and that might be true, but like, I just have this level of sort of, I see no point in like, what, why not just tell it like it is? And I do think by and large, it, some people are made wildly uncomfortable by that. I have worked for several Canadian companies and sometimes like, you know, you're dealing with someone who's just like, why are you, why are you telling me these terrifying things? But I do think like, generally speaking, like, I think it's really hard to get stuff done if yeah. you're not being really honest with yourself or whomever you're trying to get them done for. It's a waste of time. It was like, what's the point? You're just wasting time. So let's talk about this. I want to talk about your perspective as a woman in, in business and in marketing You've been pretty vocal about this. We just you just mentioned it, sort of faux feminism. You re- referred to it as pink washing, mm-hmm. the sort of a fake embracing of breast cancer awareness, things like that. And then this idea of rainbow pandering, and basically your whole thing is like this is lazy. This is a lazy marketing ploy, right? I mean, that's what I what I take away from it. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on these issues? And and I want to know what you think the responsibility of a brand is that wants to actually make an impact when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to, uh, you know, LGBTQ like issues, what, what are all those things that you've kind of like wrapped up in this bow of like marketing irresponsibility? <laughs> I want, I want to hear it from you. Like what's, what's it all about? We are living in marketing in remarkable times. Yeah. And I know that's an obvious statement, but if you really think about it, totally. we are now living in a time where it's appropriate, at least we deem it to be for a company to take a stand on issues that historically they've never yeah. had an opinion on. Yeah. Things like gun rights, things like abortion, things like LGBTQ equality, women's rights, Black Lives Matter, things that traditionally should not be part of the lexicon of a a business, especially one that sells CRMs or shoes. All right. Right. It runs the gamut. Clothing. Right. But now I think we're all kind of just taking for granted how remarkable it is that we're just used to seeing ad after ad, after in-store execution, after Super Bowl ad, whatever that just has feminism or a rainbow in it or a support for a working mother or diversity with a capital D, you name it. It doesn't matter. Any shade of the rainbow is covered now. If you really look at that, and at first, of course, everyone's response is, this is great. Look at us. We're so progressive. The world is such a great place because marketers are now integrating feel-good social campaigns into marketing. If you take a second, I mean, just a minute to like stop and think and look for 
the kinds of things that are happening behind the scenes in organizations, how they act. Right. Are they really living this? Are they living any of the yeah. values? I mean, I hate to be a skeptic, but you have to be. I hate to be naively optimistic on the other end. So what I think I hear you saying, though, is that basically like a lot of brands are conveniently jumping onto the bandwagon around these really important social issues, only they don't, they aren't actually doing anything to advance these causes. They're just basically using it as a marketing tactic. Exactly. I'll tell you where it started. Yeah, please. um, Every year, there's an International Women's Day. It's March 8th. Every single year, the entire world gets together and celebrates women, whatever. And it comes in various forms. There's a lot of government action, you know, photo ops, things like that. But for companies, what that has come to mean is the day that you launch your femvertising campaign. And it is something you do as a business to basically say, we support women. Jane Walker was a great example from a couple of years ago from Diageo, where they flipped the Johnny Walker, which we're pointing to, you can't see it in the podcast. They flipped this like dapper man into Jane Walker, a woman. She had a cane. At first, you're like, well, what the hell does that do for women's equality? It doesn't help at all. Diageo, the parent company of this brand, is actually a fantastic example of walking the walk as well as, you know, talking the talk. They are, as a company, well represented in the C-suite and the board by women. They're CFO and now they're CEO. It's a vocal champion of inclusion of women's rights. They're part of the CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion uh, Fund, which I'm probably butchering the name. But it's a, get, it's, a, it's a signed promise and a contract that CEOs of organizations sign to basically commit to doing things like increasing pay transparency and family yep. leave and all the yep. things in a business that makes it legitimately support women. Yep. In addition, the campaign also donated $250,000 to She Should Run, yep. which is an organization getting more women to run for office. And um, I forget the name of the organization, but it was in Central Park, an organization putting up statues of suffragette leaders, oh, cool. right? So they actually yeah. have some actual women yep. benefiting from the campaign because they're donating proceeds to it. The other thing they did is, as an organization, is half of the blenders for the scotch, they, thank God they didn't touch as part of this campaign. Like, don't, don't mess with my favorite scotch. They, half the blenders are women. Oh, cool. And that is unheard of in the world. And that's like a deliberate move. I don't know if it was delivered as like a quota or something. I just think that this is an organization whose ethos they value is... It. Yeah women friendly. And that's a perfect example of an organization that should have an International Women's Day campaign. Sure. Because it's showing something real from the very, very core of their business out to the world. So let me ask you a question. So, I mean, I get everything you're saying. So is it basically like you don't get a, you don't have a right to launch one of these big femvertising campaigns if you can't demonstrate that there's something real to back it up? Is that, you, you should just stay away from that. Yes. Yeah. Every marketer has a right to do what they want. Sure. And I'm not saying there's two reasons to not do it. The first, let's be really, let's be optimistic and let's be like good citizens of the world. They have a real impact on creating the illusion of progress. Uh, McKinsey did a study and found that men see a workplace that is fair and equitable, while women see the same workplace as one that offers less support and is wildly unequal. So you have two different populations looking at the same thing in two different ways. Why? Because these sometimes these ads create the illusion that we're a lot further along than we really are. Yeah, that's fair. That creates complacency. It it actually makes people hold back from being involved in the the way that these movements actually need us to be involved, Mm -hmm. right? We're not as far along as we think. If you look at all the stats. And yep. You, yep. So we need people to remain cognizant of the realities of the women in the workforce, for example, in this yep. campaign. Yep. The other danger is a monetary one. These actually present risks to brands. We live in the age of sunlight. We live in an age of accountability where you look at Me Too. Yep. It was a movement of real women's stories. 
that's it. It was a movement of actual truth tellers yeah. coming and bringing bad actors to light. There's an age of this accountability. People throw around the world authenticity. What they're asking companies to do is do what they say they're going to do. Do the things that they claim to hold dear mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. Live the values they portray. Mm -hmm. If you are exposed as a hypocrite, look at any of these campaigns. You can just Google them. There's tons of press articles from journalists that are like, this company has no it's business doing just this. lip service. It's just lip well, service. Well, I mean, I have to you ask you now because out. yeah, I have to ask you because I know you've studied this. Like, and this is what I really love and respect about you. Like, it's just not it's not some little soapbox you're up on. Like, you're this is a big thing for you, yeah. and you've thought a lot about it, and you've written a lot about it very eloquently. You, so that was an example of good. You want a, any good bad examples? KPMG had an ad that featured Phil Nicholson and a woman. They were they were golfing. Did I get his name? Right? I think so. <laughs> I'm not a golfer. Sorry, we'll say yes. <laughs> Sorry, Phil, whatever your name is. KPMG. Nicholson. Oh, this is terrible. Let me start over. No, KPMG. No. Yeah, so right. they had this ad for the KPMG women's uh, golf tournament. They uh -huh. actually sponsored a golf tournament. Yep. And the ad was a woman. And he was like, go ahead. As she teed oh, off. Oh, you can go you first. You can go first, which is fine. How chivalrous. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank God for him. And she tees off. And suddenly. You know that it tees off. So you there, you at least got that part. I sound like I know yeah, what I'm talking no, about, that right? No, that was good. That was good. I was so worried you were going to be like, so she served. <laughs> I'm a softball player and not a golfer. That's and fine. my golf Neither swing is off. No, golfing is hard. Because golfing of my hard. softball swing. So I just, I physically I understand you want to murder the ball every time. Just murder, just murder. It. Yeah, yeah. I pull I it. Guess. So it cuts to a shot of a boardroom where all the glass is falling. All right, it's breaking the glass ceiling yeah. on the green and everywhere else or whatever the, the sharing is. It's a, it's a, it's and fine. then he, you know, he picks up a piece of glass and looks at it and she's like, yeah, fine. They sponsor a female golf tournament fine. KPMG was fined for like millions of dollars, settled allegations for millions of dollars, class action lawsuit because they paid their female and black employees less than their white male counterparts and were proven to have a pattern of pregnancy discrimination. Okay, all the money. Just the fundamentals spent, like, of like women's rights. Just like, just don't be a terrible basic. asshole to women. Don't be assholes to women. Yeah. And I found this on a website called accountingtoday.com. This yeah. did not make front page news. It wasn't big enough to be seen. So I actually yeah. believe that most people that see that ad and see the KPMG logo on this. They've got some fake idea of the like authenticity there, but don't really realize what's behind it. No, that's that's all very. There's unfortunately yeah. a ton of these examples. Yeah, I'm sure I could there give are. you many. I mean, I, well, I mean, I you can go to. To, uh, my website and find out more but yeah you can go to there's a website lot unfortunately there's so many of these no I, I believe it because I do think it's been a convenient trope for businesses mm -hmm. to be like we care about stuff and it's like let's just get behind it and now there's also like social media has given us so many of these like events like it's a this day and a that day and things to celebrate mm -hmm. and so everybody's like gonna build my Instagram campaign for whatever it is they right be part of the narrative they want to be part of the narrative I which I get but I also think you're right it's like okay but but what are you gonna do if you're if you're gonna be part of the narrative then what like how do you put some something really behind that marketing is a yeah. powerful powerful force yep. and as a marketer this is why it works because it shields people from seeing what sometimes is an inconvenient Truth, yep. Yep. Not Al Gore on it here, but you know, and I think what it does as a marketer is it, it's able to change perception. Yeah, perception yep. is reality. Yep. And so, for someone who's actually on the inside of this industry, I hate again. I'm going to sound super naive here, but we can use these powers for good. Yep. We can choose to, cho you know, do campaigns and, and illustrate the right kind of behavior. And yep. if we don't find our clients, if we're working in an agency or the organization that we're in actually live these values, we have the opportunity to say no. It's not just lazy. I do think it's just. We as marketers sometimes feel beholden to what other marketers are doing. 
other marketers that we're seeing, or what we feel like the role that we feel that we play in a business. And I actually think this is a matter of marketers saying, we actually play a very advisory style role. We can tell the brand what to do to avoid. Yeah. Exactly. But you have to, you have to feel empowered in order to do that. No, it's true. And I think, and you're right. And some environments really foster that and, and some don't, you know, I've talked a lot about the fact that I think marketing is one of these, the, the most sort of inherently voyeuristic places to work. Cause it's <laughs> well, like exactly. every, well, it's just like every marketer is looking at what every other marketer is doing, what every other brand is doing. And so like, there's this tendency to want to just like, Oh, they're doing it. Let's do a thing like that. And mm-hmm. I think like, it has to be authentic, whatever. It, it's fine to take inspiration from other brands and other marketers or whatever. But it's, if like all you're doing is trying to repackage that thing and not trying to breathe your own story into it, then like, I think you do a disservice to the discipline of marketing. Damn right, girl. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Bring your own playbook to the table. Yeah. Test your own playbook. Stop copying the playbook of other marketers. Yeah. This is B2B. This is B2C. Yeah. This is especially inherent in B2B where every deal cycle is different. Yeah. You should never be copying another company in a different industry's marketing. Yeah, I agree. Period. Well, and I've, I've also found too, you know, like I've actually worked in marketing tech for a really long time and it'll be interesting because I won't be working in marketing tech for much longer. Yeah. Um, but there's this tendency when you've come from a place and you know that playbook to always, you were like, well, let's just replicate the thing I did before. This worked really well for me last time. And someone very wise told me like, be careful of that yes. because you get a lot of false positives and suddenly you're like, oh, well, why didn't it work? And so I've been careful to say, well, I've got all this experience, this history that tells me like, let's head in this direction, but let's think about it newly for this business. Mm-hmm. And let's try to solve for the problems that we have and not assume that it's the problem I had, you know, three years ago. It so, takes a lot of courage to do that yeah, though, because it requires you each time to try something new. Yeah. The more seasoned you become as a marketer, I do think you get really kind oh, of totally. set in your ways yeah. because of, as you called it, a, a voyeuristic profession, but nowhere else in a business like marketing is your work so on display? It's, and it's so does subjective everybody too. around you think that they know marketing? Oh, they, everybody knows. Nobody looks at a CFO yeah. and says, I'm going to tell the CFO. That spreadsheet right. looks really just, I mean, I, you could have better <laughs> macros. Like, who's doing that? But everyone consumes marketing all day. Oh, totally. We're consuming. So we think oh, that we me. know marketing. Oh, so now marketing. we have marketers that are not trusted by anyone in the organization yep. to do new things, relying on old playbooks and being expected to do more than ever. Yeah. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's vitalant.org. Help save lives and schedule your appointment at vitalant.org. You could help save lives. I want to kind of end with, I mean, everything we've talked about to this point has really been in some way about content. I'm Mm. just going to say like content. Mm. And it's like, what does that even mean anymore? Is content marketing a thing unto itself? Is it still a discipline? Like, whoa, content marketing has like evolved so much in terms of what we think it includes and how you do it. I mean, in the early, early days, I think it was like the written word and like mm-hmm. we have a blog and talk a little bit about what you think content marketing is, if it is even still a thing. And like, what do you think is kind of the future of this whole discipline? I think it's very much a thing. I think as an industry, we tend to want it to be done because yeah, we're right. sick of talking about it. Right. That I blame myself and you for, Elle. 
It's Martech vendors are ruining marketing because yeah. every year we're trying to push the new, the new, the new thing. category. Yeah, yeah, right. thing. We've got a new thing and it's and, called this. And, yeah. and you need to, yeah. you know, this is the year of this and the age of that. Yeah. And and I get it. I've been very, very guilty of doing that on behalf of Martech brands for now. 10 years. Oh, I'm, I'm solely responsible for so, so much of it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Martin marketing. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> but I was, I, I was a willing participant. Yeah. It's well, yeah. But we've all been there. And so what happens is you create a world in which there's something new every 365 days, yep. because guess what? That's when your customer conference is. That's when your industry trade show is. Yeah. And so we actually have a, a, a wrong expectation that the world of marketing changes that quickly. Which it really doesn't. No, you're right. It really doesn't. People Thank think you. it's changing. Amen. Yes. I agree with that. People need to like take time yeah. to, to this is where it comes down to your own playbook, your own measures of success, yep. your buyers and what's working for them. With content marketing, yes, the big, it was the big thing in 2010, 11, 12, maybe 13 is when yeah. we hit. Yeah. And now, so I'm an executive director of a nonprofit here called Boston, Boston Content. content. Yep. 2,200 members just in the Boston area, full-time dedicated. Most of them are content marketing managers for software firms. That's really where the, quote, content marketing industry sits. Yep. And to your point, it has historically been, we have a blog, we're going to do eBooks. We're going to gate those eBooks. Right. If right. we buy Path Factory, we're going to have a seamless experience for buyers. <laughs> There's this like industry unto itself yeah, totally. of content marketing tech, content marketing yep. tools and the content marketing. Which, which I will say, like it had this zeitgeist moment, I think where around the time that you were talking about where before that, like it was this amorphous ill-formed thing that like wasn't really a discipline and right. you, you didn't even necessarily see people with like content marketing nope. jobs. Nope. I mean, this all coalesced around the same time of like, when marketing automation, I think, really gave birth to demand gen yes. as a profession and content marketing kind of came on the heels of that. But it was like, I mean, it was new, new, new. It was the new stuff. And you might have somebody who had like a Marcom role and now they were like responsible for content, but the brand wasn't like good at creating content, no, right? Marcom had always been about PR. Yeah. And demand gen was very digital, very sales process driven. So now you needed content. And so content came in the middle of that. Yeah. And you had professionals coming from the world of journalism, coming from PR and coming from an emerging world of, of digital marketing yeah. and, and demand gen to form a very amalgamous content marketing position. But what that's given rise to, and now we're like, I would say 10 years into yeah, this, totally. this industry, is this great mm -hmm. class of content professionals who are incredibly business savvy. They're not sitting in the world of journalism, which is yep. not business driven yep. or unfortunately PR, which tends to be a little bit not sales driven. Yep. They actually are a great mix and di kind of dichotomy between yep. a sales process and business goals, and brands. revenue, yes. all that stuff. Yeah. But they're also driven by, by perception and brand. It's yep. actually, and this is why I feel very fortunate to have kind of had my whole career focused and centered in yep. using content to build brands. It's given me this great opportunity to sit between the market and a company. And I think for me, content marketing today is actually better than ever, thriving more than ever, yep. still as misunderstood by, by organizations as it was 10 yep. years ago, yep. but with a little bit more discipline. Yep. So I just actually finished editing a book for Kapos, which is now an Upland software company. And I hope you look for it very soon. They did a wonderful job with it. It actually is a fable as well as a set of content operations best practices. Oh, cool. They wrote this great story. Shout out to Zoe Randolph, who wrote this story about a fake security company who was going through a content marketing revolution. Oh, fun. Oh, it is. They made a scenario in which you could. absolutely That's the best real. stuff, isn't it? It's the it best really, stuff when you're like, oh, I totally, I see a play out instead of some like surgical, boring. Right. Like, they actually told a real story that you can relate to. And the whole point of it is that content now is about content operations at 
some of the largest companies in the world. Yep. It is a discipline that requires process and the right technology and the right, you know, and that to me indicates the maturity totally. of this industry. Yep. But I still think it's it's wildly misunderstood. It's, I, everyone has adopted it kind of the way they adopt MarTech as a silver bullet instead of as an integrated part of strategy. Yep. Yep. It's not going to look the same in every organization. You've got to bring your own playbook to it. Yep. But if you do it right, I still and always will believe that it it is the future of marketing. It is great marketing. Well, it's table stakes today too, right? Like you're not you're not building a brand and getting away without having a strong point of view from a content perspective, right? And I think some, you see some companies who just excel at it and do it really well. And they have this very rich, multi-dimensional thing. And they don't think of content just in terms of the written word or the ebook or the whatever. They right. think about content in all these different places, anywhere the buyer could be, anywhere the brand could live. And how do you then create compelling content? And again, like that can mean a lot of different things. It I doesn't think have some, to be an ebook no. or a podcast, no. or it could be an experience. I, yeah. I think content is, is this new application of where creativity lives in a business and it really it had now you have no excuse you have so many channels to play with yep test it all try it all Um, and i'm with you i think content that is treated like an experience i know that's a buzzword now but if you treat it like an experience of what am i hoping somebody's going to do with this i think is is going to perform better than ever i mean i also think about it in terms of trust and the more you give away this has always been the mantra of content marketing but i think totally this is the one thing that we really suck at trust has been the one thing that content was purported to deliver. Give away your thought leadership and buyers will recognize yep. that you're a thought leader and they'll trust what you have to say, yep. that you're the one to help them. And fine. But I think that thought leadership has just never actually been executed at the level it could be. And this, I mean, I love Edelman. Shout out to their research reports every year that show the gap, like 88% of buyers, I'm probably going to butcher the actual quotes. Some high percentage of buyers say <laughs> it is a huge part of their purchase decision. Yep. Some awful percent of the content they say that they read is actually relevant. That definition. Yeah. No, it fits the bill yeah. of thought leadership. Yeah. Yeah. We cannot get out of our own way and yeah. publish the kind of stuff that for 10 years we've been trying to get companies to publish. Well, so here's what I will say. I mean, I do think there's a movement and again, sort of the zeitgeist moment that is, and that's a big part of what I love to talk about on the podcast and why I want to do it. Like, B2B brands investing in the brand and recognizing content as a central part of how you actually establish a clear point of view in the market and be known for something. And that is all the work of of great brand. Mm -hmm. And it's all mixed up with content today. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's having a moment. I think companies are getting hip to the fact that like, you know, you can't just run some demand engine that's all about getting someone to fill out the form and download the asset and whatever. At some point you have to be willing to say like, it's got to be a bigger thing. Mm-hmm. We've got to have a bigger you know, point of view here. And we do have to, it has to be unfettered and, and easy. And a lot of times when you think about the best B2C brands, you're not bumping into like, fill out our form to learn this amazing thing. Or like, like they're just flinging it out there, giving it all away because they want you to have that experience with the brand. Exactly. I do think like there is a trend sort of going in that direction on the B2B side. Huge. We can only hope. Yeah. Brand is the new big investment yeah. area for yeah. B2B because yeah. of how competitive things are yeah. and the fact that we need differentiation. It's the only way. I hope that they allow that investment in content to rise right with it. But it's what you said before. I, and, you know, being someone who firmly believes all of that stuff mm-hmm. and has has thought of it that way and, you know, my last marketing leadership role, it takes a certain amount of bravery to say, 
we're going to do these things and I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to show you attribution in the pipeline or whatever, but I'm really comfortable that there's going to be some correlation with the growth of this organization, that people are going to like us more, that conversations are going to get easier, that we're going to just, you know, organically sort of get bigger. And I, I've always been pretty comfortable with that. I think there's still this tendency in B2B companies to say, we've got to prove it worked. We've got to show like that the person did the thing and then became a lead and all this stuff. And it's like, I really do think that if you're willing to be brave about it and you're willing to put the stuff out there and do the very best things, you will, it's a rising tide and you will see the impact, but it might, you might have to get comfortable more with correlation versus causation. Yes. And you need to be comfortable with long-term plans. Yeah. I would hope that a CMO is given more time to allow these long-term plans to stick around, but often they're kicked out in 43 months. So they don't get to see the results of a long-term brand campaign, but you're right. It's about expectation setting internally and not being entirely beholden to the, uh, the downfall of the revenue marketer movement, yep. which is that we look for yep. exact attribution for everything. And yep. that's just not the reality of marketing. No. We can prove a lot and we should, and we should hold ourselves accountable to proving what we're driving. Yep. What it takes is setting the right expectations as a marketing leader. Yep. So you're not setting yourself up for failure. No, totally. Sounds easy on a podcast. Yep. I think it's about marketers realizing the, the impact of a long-term brand. The words like air cover, words like trust and loyalty and brand awareness, they, they all still, like I said, marketing doesn't change that much. Yeah. They still have a role. We have to be willing to prove the value of other things elsewhere. Yep. I'm with you 100%. I think that, easy. yeah, easy. just easy. go do it. That's another podcast. That's totally other podcast. Maybe we'll do that podcast. Not me. Not me. So this has been really fun. It is called The Further Podcast, and it is about pushing marketing a little bit further, which I think is a lot of what we talked about today. And thank you for letting me come crash your, your space here. And that's a wrap. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Appreciate it. No, thanks for doing it.